fourth episode of Coffee and Consoles, featuring John Cardoni and myself, Kevin Freund. We're glad you're here. Hey, Kevin, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you, Johnny boy? All right. I think that was a nice, calming intro we had. You think our listeners have spotted the tune? Probably. Hopefully that may have given it away. It may have given it away. Yes. (laughs) This week's tune is Hallelujah, the Jeff Buckley version. From the album Grace. But before we dive into our song of the week... Yeah. What you been doing? We have to catch up a little bit. Man, I think from the last, since the last time we recorded, I've installed two and a half toilets, and I can explain where the half comes in. Please. <laughs> we had a little leak from our upstairs guest bathroom toilet that was starting to slowly seep into the ceiling below. And luckily, it was just a very small leak, very like just like a little bit was starting to come through the ceiling. Hmm. So we had a plumber check it out, cut a hole through the ceiling. It's like, yep, just the seal of that toilet. And then he said, well, if you're going to put a new seal on the toilet, you might as well put in a new toilet since these are about 20 years old. And so you might as well just do that. And then he said, and if you're going to do that, you might as well just replace the other one upstairs too, because it's probably the same age and the same thing could just end up happening again. So the plan was to put in two new toilets upstairs. The first one went fine got the guest bathroom in, and then the master bath toilet, I take that out. I get the toilet with the appropriate rough-in size measure, but it still didn't fit because the damn water main coming up from the floor oh, was no. too close to the actual like you know hole, and so the ceramic was hitting the, the water main pipe. pipe yeah. So it couldn't fit. So I couldn't install that second one. I just got a new seal for the old toilet, and so I put that one back in. So it's kind of like installing two and a half toilets. I see. I'd make a yeah. I'd make a potty joke here, but it's too dirty. <laughs> so that was fun. And then the next day we bought a new car, so it was quite an adventure. Yeah, you got activity. another new car. I know. It seems like you just got your other. It did new new car because we did because that one was we had to. This one's kind of more of a preemptive. The wife's car was just kind of. Everything was going wrong, it seemed like. It'd be one thing after another. My car is falling apart, but I'm trying to parlay my car into a motorcycle. You and your motorcycle. The wife does not want me to get a motorcycle. She is convinced I will kill myself, and so is pretty much all my friends and family. Pretty much everyone else has told you the same thing. Actually, (laughs) it's just everyone I talk to about this tells me not to buy a motorcycle. So I love the the romantic idea of a motorcycle. But Seems fun, right? Yes, but the practical reality of it, I don't think I could ever get behind. No offense to any motorcycle riding listeners out there. It is, I have an uncle who, who rides all the time. It is it, less yeah. practical in, in situations, but if I keep my car running so just cool. well enough... Yeah, then keep that thing going. Anytime it rains or whatever, or like it's bad weather, then I can I can take the car. But you know, on these like beautiful fall days that we have here, it's like seventy and sunny right now. Gorgeous yeah. motorcycle ride. We're in the uh, the nice part of the season. We have approximately one more week of yeah. this nice weather. Yeah, we have about like maybe two and a half, three weeks total of autumn until it just goes from stupid humid summer weather of ninety degrees to okay, now we're in the fifties. To humid. And wet, but not but not freezing. No, no, not no freezing, snow. Yeah. Just just cold and wet. Yeah, we hardly get any snow around here. Yeah, but it does get like It'll down get cold. into down into the, the yeah. We we'll get into the teens sometimes. Teens, yeah, in the, yeah, in the winter time. Looking forward to that. Being As Canadian, always. Kevin. When I play hockey, yes, I, uh, yeah. am one with the cold. <laughs> I'm not actually Canadian, but no, just so I don't confuse anyone. You're honorary. Canadian mm. or Canadian at heart in a way. I don't think I don't think the Canadians would take me <laughs> no. if if they. I don't know if they it, saw you on the ice. No, they would laugh at me. Yeah. Those guys are playing hockey since like they can walk. I'm playing hockey from the ripe old age of 26, and you can barely walk now. And I can <laughs> barely walk now, yeah, with my injuries. But it's all right, you know. Being a Canadian hockey player in my heart, I uh, play through muscle tears, whether I should or, or should not. Rough it out. 
Exactly. It's bad. Don't do that. Let your body heal, folks. Yes. Yeah. That's true. Man up. Well, I yeah, have been trying have you been to. Up to? I've been trying else? to update the studio. Yeah, you're doing some troubleshooting. It's troubleshooting. Like. It turns out our our problems have been all due to a bad cable. That's usually the case. It seems like it's always like a bad. It's so bad frustrating in the bunch because it's like a heavy duty cable, and I I bought the cable thinking it would last for like a few years, and I guess it did last a couple years, but it's gone bad now. So I guess I have to buy another cable, which is fine. But it's just one of those things. It's it's annoying. It seems like yeah, it is. Things never last as long as you want them to. It's always the cable things that are always the annoyances. Like, yeah, because there's so many points of failure or power supply. Like my last. About three gigs in a row, I kept forgetting that I had lost the IEC power cable to my pedal board. Oh, no. Do you want one? I have several. Oh, I have another one already. But, like, so I had to keep borrowing one from, like, the sound guys or <laughs> from the band I was gigging with. I'm like, damn it. Like, there was a guitar player on one of the gigs you subbed out, and his IEC to three-prong cable didn't have the ground pin. That's not good. And I was like, bro. Yeah. He's like, no, I just I just can't afford one. I was like, I have one in my car right now I can give yeah. you. You're going to kill yourself. Yeah, no, that's not good. They call they call amps without a ground prong widow makers. Yes. So, for good reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just keep that in mind. Yes. If you're losing that, if you don't have that third prong, don't no. plug it in. No. It's no uh, it's no bueno. But yeah, so so the studio's going through some upgrades, um, going through some cleaning, gonna gonna rearrange. I think I think I might get a different desk. And kind of, yeah, I kind of like your desk. It's I, so, it's, it's a big desk, but it is half of big. the drawers are locked because I bought it at Goodwill, and, and you can't unlock. Them? I can't unlock them. No, can't even. Wow. Yeah. How do you get into a? It's, it's locked. I've tried. I've tried prying it open with all sorts of stuff, and unless I like completely destroy the the drawers, I guess. Yeah. The lock can't be that sophisticated, right? I bet there's a way to. No, lock it has pick to be. It. Has to be somewhere. There's a channel on YouTube yeah. called The Lock Picking Lawyer. And maybe, maybe <laughs> shout out to the will, lock picking lawyer. <laughs> maybe I can write into him and he will answer my question on yeah. how to break in. And if you want to write into us, how would you do that, John? They would do that by emailing us at coffeeandconsoles at gmail.com. That's right. It's the word coffee and as in the word and, and then consoles and at gmail.com. Yes. And w- I think we might start- eventually we'll get into like maybe you'll have like a. A Q&A. Instagram page or something like oh, that. Oh, I see. Even like a Twitter account. If this thing, you know. We have more than four listeners. Yes, exactly. Once we hit seven listeners, we'll. <laughs> oh, don't make promises. Yeah. You don't want to keep. I, once we get a hundred consistent listeners, mm-hmm. we will start either a Twitter or Instagram. Yes. And maybe at 250 will be. 250 will be our topless calendar that we put out. Ch- champing at the bit for that one. Yeah. By the way, it's champing at the bit, not chomping at the bit. Really? That is, that is the correct. Champing? Yeah. It's champing. You don't chomp at a... You don't chomp at a... a yeah, at a, the restraints for the horses. It's oh, It's champing okay. wow. at the bit. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know why I know that, but... You know, that that makes me uh, think of the term uh, up and atom. As a kid, I used to think it was up and atom. That's so high. Like That's how I think of it. Like molecular, yeah. like atom. Oh, I think of it as like... Adam, the the man. Yeah, like oh yeah, like at, and then you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what it is. But I used wow. to think it was the word atom, like the particle, the particle. Yeah, up an atom, or the word or the name Adam, like Adam and Eve. Somehow I thought like, it had like some biblical reference, like up mm. an atom. Oh dear, I know. Don't catch but, yourself up an atom. Either way, I thought of it as a kid. It wasn't the correct way. <laughs> For this week, if there's anyone left listening at this point. We're going oh, to yeah. talk about Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I actually picked this song, but we both yeah, kind of like your... it, don't we? Oh, yeah. This is definitely one of those top albums. It is the only song, well, one of two songs you can play on a ukulele. You know what the <laughs> other song is? Wait, what, that that you can play on a ukulele? No, that, anyone, that, that anyone, anyone can play, play on a ukulele? Yeah, there's oh, only yes. two, two songs that are allowed. Oh, then uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Oh, of course. Of course, yes. yes. <laughs> Indeed it is. So... I, yes. Well, that gets to the one fascinating aspect of just the song itself, Hallelujah, is just how widely known it is now and covered all the time in so many instances. Yes. Yeah. It's 
really, really popular cover song, partly because the chording of it is really simple and straightforward. It's not throwing you a... Yeah, no, it's a fairly, fairly simple, like, from a harmonic standpoint, song. I guess you could say Buckley's arrangement of it is a little bit more complex than, say, a beginning guitar student would try to play. Definitely, yeah. Well, I wouldn't give this to a beginner at all, and you know, you'd have to be intermediate at least, especially if you wanted to do like the finger style that he does. You know, you could get by with just strumming the chords. Strumming the chords, yeah. Which would be pretty. Yeah. That'd be pretty beginner. Yeah, I got. I have a little, little bit of notes about about this album. Yeah, how do we start off with what you got? Well, the album Grace was released in 1994. Do you know how old I was in '94? Were you even born? I was. I was I was three. What? <laughs> I was three years old when this album was released, which is about forty years better than we have been doing. Yeah, that's true. This is our first, uh, you know, semi-modern post nineteen seventy <laughs> song. I think it's the first song we were both alive mm-hmm. during its initial release. Granted, I was pooping my pants, but I was alive. Yeah, it was recorded in nineteen ninety three. That makes sense. In September, at a studio called Bearsville, which is in Woodstock, New York. Okay, yeah. That kind of makes sense, because he started to gig around like East Village. Yeah, and what's really interesting about the Bearsville studio is it was actually started by, I think, Bob Dylan, and primarily used as a demo studio. And so interesting. It was there's not a whole ton of commercial releases from it. There are a few if you if you look up like its discography, but it was primarily used for demos, which is fascinating in and of itself that back then even early 90s there were still like just studios just set up for demoing. Well, and not even like commercial release. So the studio was set up I believe either in the Late seventies or early eighties. Let me. I'm gonna, so I'm gonna been, check that real quick. Been around for a while, but just the idea of like going to a studio just to record demos, and then if those happen to get picked up by a label or what have you, then you go to another studio, perhaps like <laughs> like these days yeah. the demo studios are you know where we're at right now, someone's house, okay. someone's basement. So yeah. it was opened in 1969. Oh, cool. So so late sixties, but it was still around. In the 90s. But yeah, if it's you're, still you're around absolutely these right. days. And the 90s was kind of that time yeah. period where studios were starting the transition. It's really the last time in the music industry where you would have the $200,000 recording budget. Yeah, the massive budgets to record yeah, albums. it's kind of the end of that era. This studio was really kind of cool. In Studio A, it had a Neve 8088, which I don't know. I, know I don't know anything to, about that. You've been to Oceanway Nashville. Mm-hmm. In their A room, they have an 8076, I believe it is. Okay. I believe. They're all very similar. To and this honest. is an 8080? This is an 8088. 88. And so, so any of those numbers referring to like how many channels total? Or is it just, mm, you know, just model? Yes and naming, no. Yeah. Uh, uh, these with, with studio uh, consoles, they kind of, some of them refer to like the number of channels and sometimes it just, it seems like they kind of pick a random number. I'm sure there's some sort of significance within the circuitry that makes sense, but mm-hmm. I don't know enough about circuitry to uh, to really know. But but it's a, it's essentially an 8076 or 8088. They're pretty interchangeable. You wouldn't be like, oh man, this sounds great on the Neve 8088, but on the 8076, it sounds absolutely terrible. Sure, yeah, probably not going to get the. The mixer producer is like, oh, that sounds like a 8088. Yeah. So, so you just pulled up the Ocean Wave. I did because, I, you know, ironically, I used to, uh, used used to, to be in the studio all, all the time. Did you intern there? Was that what? Uh, kind that of. We did, it wasn't or? an internship per se. Okay. It was basically what the, the studio is owned by Belmont University. And mm-hmm. what they do is you can work for this, the school. And you work in the studio, so students come in and they do their projects, and you're kind of on call and make sure stuff isn't breaking. And if there's any problems, you kind of have to troubleshoot. Which for people outside of Nashville, like to say like a college owns this recording studio, at first you might picture some rinky-dink sort of a place, but 
just check out Ocean Wave and you would be amazed. Like used to be an old church that got converted to oh, a recording yeah. studio with massive rooms and we can fit whole orchestras in there. In fact, that's where they do a lot of symphony recordings for video games these days. Yep, yep. We have a couple buddies who are in uh, some symphonies, uh, symphonies and string uh, groups that do a lot of string recordings for video games these days. We've been getting a lot of that stuff coming, kind of uh, exporting from L.A. into here, <laughs> which is pretty cool. So Studio A had the Neve 8088, and then Studio B had an SSL-6000E, which is very interesting. And I think we're going to do a deep dive. I guess we could do it now into the SSL console. You want to do that now? Sure. Why not? So we've been promising some some console talk, and and here we go. It's in the name. It's in the name. So for my money, the SSL... 4000K, or I guess it would just be 4K, 6K, 8K, the SSL, G, and E series consoles is really what I think of when I think of the sound of, of rock and roll. It, well, it's, it's, okay. it's on the front end, it's a Neve, everything being tracked through a Neve, and then on the back end, it being mixed through an SSL. These consoles were so popular during the 80s. And mm-hmm. I actually learned on an SSL 4000G. That's cool. Which, now, does SSL stand for something? It does. It stands for Solid State Logic. That's what I thought. It just... is a British company, which actually, just a few days ago, they they announced a, a new large format console. You were just mentioning this to me it's the other the day. called the SSL yeah. Origin. Origin. And it is a completely analog console that they had to basically redesign because the older consoles use some circuitry or metals that aren't uh, aren't cool anymore. Oh yeah, and, and they those... consume a lot of power. Sure, so yeah. They aren't exactly uh, able to to mass produce those things anymore. So a humongous all analog console. So they yeah, yeah. they redesigned it with with different parts, but like supposedly still keeps the same like characteristics as the old consoles and it doesn't it connects to your DAW but like you have to get like another plug-in for it or something hmm. to like do like the f- automation with the faders it seems kind of if you're doing a, like a tracking studio I can kind of understand it but these these desks these SSL desks didn't really earn their keep as tracking desks they were really earn their keep as mixing desks, which you don't really mix analog anymore. I mean, you can, but you it's... Can, but you can, not these days. It's, it's a huge pain in the butt because done. if you ever have to do revisions, and revisions, that's just standard now. I mean, if you yeah. tell someone, oh, I can't do revisions. I can do revisions for a few hours, but once the board is cleared, you know, the board that's is it. cleared. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's why, like, back, you know, like, it just doesn't seem... For most things like that might have you know, 80, 100 tracks, you know, unless you're doing something that was more of a minimal thing, I guess it'd be more, yeah, a little easier to. Uh, if you're mixing a song like Hallelujah, then yeah, you maybe yeah. could get away with it. And they, they probably, that's probably how they did mix it. That's why I kind of want to go on this deep dive. So you were asking earlier if the numbers kind of had any significance to yeah. the console. And this, they, these do actually. So the 4K, they have four mix buses. Two stereo, or you can do a left, right, center, and surround. And those would each be individual channels. So it's either two left and right, or left, right, center, surround. Then the 6K has six buses, and the 8K has eight buses. Early E series, so there's E and G series SSL consoles. So you can get like a a 4K E or a 4K G, right, console. Mm -hmm. And the E series has the brown EQ knobs on the plugins these days of these old SSL consoles you, a lot of times they they have a feature where you can switch in and out the low band EQ for either brown knob or black knob so what do you mean by brown knob well the brown kind of sounds EQs, dirty <laughs> they had it was it was the low end and okay. it, they just had brown knobs but then when they switched it in the G series to the black knob then they were little black knobs and are there some superstitions about like no, no, no. Okay, that's there's like actually that. like, the circuits the brown actually knobs different. Sound better. Yeah. So with with the black knob EQ, the filters on the low end could be manually selected 
to be put in or out of the circuit. And on the brown knobs, they they had extreme high and low uh, pass filters that were always switched in. So it was always filtering your signal just a little bit, which makes okay. sense why people would like the black knobs. Would maybe they associate would, that. They would too. love it on drums, like kick drums and stuff, because you're getting that low end that it was getting filtered out in the brown. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. And we can't mention SSL and not mention the compressor. <laughs> the bus compressor. Or we could, I suppose. No, we could not no. There, <laughs> there are more plug-in emulations of the SSL bus compressor than probably any other compressor. Maybe the Fairchild has just mm-hmm. as many or like the 1176, but it's in that category of just every manufacturer has their version of the SSL bus compressor. Sure. And I got to tell you, they're all really crazily kind of different, even though it's supposedly a piece of hardware with like fixed attack and release times. Yeah, they they're all they're supposed sound, to be kind of modeled after the same thing. Yeah, they're absolutely supposed to be like this is like a this is a circuit. <laughs> this is not like a thing with a bunch of variables in it. Mm-hmm. But like for some reason, like if you buy the Waves SSL bus compressor versus the UAD bus compressor versus the T Rex bus compressor, they all just the way they compress and the way they sound all just sound different. And like half of them I like and half of them I don't. Interesting. I'm not gonna say which, which. do you prefer? Okay, well, yeah, since I you just asked, say it. Yeah. <laughs> I actually prefer the cheapest one of the bunch. Oh, which is really? The T Rex. The T Rex. Yeah, and it doesn't look. Ooh. It doesn't have like the licensing to call itself the oh. SSL bus compressor. So it's called like the British bus compressor. You oh, know? Okay, I was going to say, is it like the? Yeah, you know, I don't know what it'd be. But know, that like, being said, like money sign, money sign L. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> money, mo- <laughs> money, money, logarithmic. Yeah. <laughs> so the British bus comp- compressor by T Rex is is awesome. It's, and I think I like it because it's like it's super improper. It's so dirty, and it like just like the harmonics. I've actually done tests where I get a like a you connect like a isotope insight plugin where it tells you all like the different harmonics, and you can shoot mm-hmm. noise through it and see how the plugin responds. And I've I've tested them all like back to back, and this one's just like so much dirtier. It's like not clean at all. <laughs> it just generates harmonics. Which you would think would be bad wazoo. or not. It's good and bad. Desirable, it depends what you want. And yeah. sometimes I do throw it on something and I'm just like, man, that's, that's too much. But yeah. yeah, so. But that seems to be like the, some of the, I don't know, you can say like the romantic notions or the preferences for like older gear sometimes, especially like, you know, outboard compressors or, you know, say oh, yeah. there was like certain tube amps. There's that certain, certain dirtiness to it. That no, that's a thing. Kind of adds to that sound that helps it have a characteristic. Funny enough, the way I mix is primarily taking advantage of just that, is I find gear that generates a bunch of harmonics, and then I use those harmonics to kind of filter my sound in a -hmm. way I I want. And And when you say harmonics, a lot of people tend to use, like the layman's term for those are like overtones that people tend to think of. Yes. Is that what, like, yes. meaning the same thing? Yeah, it's like... like the technical have, term are harmonics. Yeah, if you have a, a a root note, then there are harmonics above and below that note that yeah. also sound with it. And it's the same for gear. When you manipulate sound, you, you can generate these harmonics with distortion. Yeah. And just, like, even compressing can cause weird things to happen. Yeah, not to be confused with... Yes, not the musical finger uh, pinch harmonics. Although the harmonic uh, overtone series is followed, like you know, as a guitarist, you can you can figure out what what the harmonic series is from your root note to the first harmonic. Oh yeah, it's it's, second harmonic. You can calculate all that, and it's pretty cool. And strangely enough, wireless frequencies all have harmonics associated with them as well. That I did not know. Yeah, so. I went to a wireless seminar not too long ago. This might be getting way, way into the weeds for some people. Oh, yeah. That's but <laughs> just, uh, so, so the band John and I work with has about 15 channels of wireless or so. And I've, I figured out, maybe it's like 20. I, I figured oh, out we, so we generate... It seems like so much. <laughs> yeah, we generate about 15,000 different harmonics that can interfere with the frequencies that everything's set to. When I... Th- I try not to think about it, but when I think about it, I think like, how is this not affecting my brain? <laughs> it's it probably is. I don't. Know. It probably it probably it's probably not. It, I mean, well, 
I guess we'll know in a yeah. few years when all the musicians and sound engineers yeah. are getting weird cancer. So you have your SSL 4000 G and E. I think they're really great for mixing. They sound phenomenal. The routing options on them are really flexible. And these consoles, they're just grab and go. I really, I really loved working on these when I was using large format stuff more often because with a Neve, say Neve VR, one of their newer consoles, it's like mm-hmm. every step of the way, it's like, are you sure you want to do this? Turn this on. Turn up the master. Turn on the master. Do this, do that. With the SSL, it's like click on the aux and there's a master, but it's always turned on. So it eliminates a bunch of arbitrary like extra steps. steps. Yeah, that'd be annoying. It's it, Their <laughs> VRs are super annoying. But they're really popular because you know, they are. Um, hmm. The compressor uh, stayed the same through the ENG. Uh, they only switched the VCA chip, which is the voltage control uh, amplifier chip. Not really a noticeable difference there. They probably just did it for uniformity or cost reasons. There are also the 9000 and K-series SSL consoles that were released in 95. The 9000 has no capacitors. And you might say, why do I care about that? Well, why do I care about that? <laughs> capacitors limit the theoretical bandwidth of the console. So depending on what value capacitors, you might say only get from 3 hertz to 15k hertz. Yeah. Well, this SSL console with no capacitors, they deemed the super analog, which Hmm. has a theorized bandwidth of 5 hertz to (laughs) 50,000 hertz. (laughs) That's so ridiculous. (laughs) So what is the uh, the range of human hearing again? Uh, that would be uh, <laughs> 20 to 20,000 hertz. Yes, give or take. Give <laughs> or take. And so, so this would be great for canines. Great for canines. <laughs> There's the whole debate about more bandwidth, being able to record higher and higher frequencies with sample rate and bit depth is the conversation now. Mm-hmm. And my philosophy on that is... As long as you have 20 to 20, you're doing fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess there could be some theories or, you know, that maybe we're subconsciously affected by 30K hertz or... People say it's the way it makes you feel. And to me, that's junk science. I don't know what they're talking about because I've done the test. I've listened to a super highly recorded, you know, 192 Mm -hmm. thing, and I've listened to a 44.1 and... It's for my money, it's pretty darn hard to hear the difference. Maybe if you're listening to like a low quality MP3, you can hear a difference, but oh, definitely. that's yeah. a different thing. Yeah, that's, that's you're DJ. literally throwing away data that you don't perceive mm-hmm. to make the file smaller. I want you have to be careful yeah. with the way you say that because there's a notion out there that MP3 remove data that you can hear, which isn't necessarily, that's not necessarily the, the case. The case. It's, yeah. You use a, a principle that's called masking. And so you just remove the material that you your brain was gonna cover up anyway. Yeah. That it was already it was like an overload. Like you don't you don't need the It's almost like meant to like frequencies. Help your brain play the trick on you to save data. Pretty much. Yeah. Sense. But the old the old, really old ones actually filtered into like the audible hearing range. So like on some things you can kinda hear like symbols get, getting a little funny or whatever, but but nowadays it's they're pretty good. Aren't yeah, they? and especially like back in the early two thousands, you know, you know, I was in college when Napster became the big thing. But yes, of course, everyone your, was uh, uploading. Line. Yeah, no T one line. T one. Yeah, the T one line. But you know, and those MP three files back then, you know, were so like low grade that you could obviously hear like the differences. And I wonder if lots of that whole like the digital versus analog debate kind of stems from that. With like 100%. the first digital recordings weren't the best because we didn't even have that much bandwidth or storage space so you kind of had to sacrifice the quality for quantity and i understand for those people who grew up in that era and say we're working on things during that time of course you're going to have this affection for analog equipment and we all love analog equipment i'm not saying that we don't it's just especially for a tinkerer you know someone you want to get your hands dirty into it you gotta twist knobs oh yeah exactly one more thing about the SSL um, EQ, actually, is the G-Series has a proportional Q, 
which means the more you boost, the bigger the queue gets. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then the... And by queue, for those who don't know... The queue is the range of frequencies that you affect with your boost or cut. Kind of like how wide or narrow your bell curve is in That's a sense, exactly right? That's exactly right. And then the other one had a variable queue. So you could actually select the queue size. Mm-hmm. There was like slight changes to the ranges that you could boost or cut yeah. by like a, just a couple dB. So, but I mean, all things, all, all functional considerations, you're, you're doing fine with either one of them. That's pretty cool. So yeah, that's that's kind of yeah what I have on the SSL. Console did, you, uh, did you have who uh, produced this album? I Great. don't actually. Don't. Oh, this is if I'm not mistaken, it was Andy guy Wallace. Named, yeah, Andy Wallace. I do have yes, it. You do have yeah. It's just a name written in the middle of my paper, <laughs> Andy Wallace. And I think he probably engineered and mixed it too. I think he kind of did the whole shebang. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. And. I knew I kind of had heard that name or seen it before, like in old like liner notes to CDs. So I looked him up, and he has quite the pedigree, you know, from everyone from like Run DMC to Slayer and White Zombie to Sublime and Wow, uh, Limp Biscuit, you know. But most of those, like he generally, I think he just does engineering and mixing. Like that's his bread and butter. That's his forte. Yeah, that's his forte. But he would, you know, produce some things like Man Grace After My Own Heart. Yeah, exactly. Grace is one of those albums he produced. Wow. Pretty um, good. No kidding. No shit. Like this, I would consider for like a, you know, rock album, this is one of the best produced albums. Like by far it's like It just works. The whole thing just works. It sounds sounds great. Rocks and moves you without it being oversaturated. You know, it's not like a overly saturated sort of like heavy metal sound at all but it's just so awesome and diverse too in styles like you get those like overdubbed on some of the tracks like yeah mandolins like multiple acoustics and electrics and some wacky sounds here and there which are always fun and then you know the songs themselves the originals of buckley's are really interesting and not your typical kind of especially from the early mid 90s not your typical kind of alternative rock thing that was going on at he that was kind point. of an interesting guy yeah he? yeah he loved led zeppelin talk about like he was a big fan of led zeppelin i wonder if he heard our episode on whole lot of love i'm sure he did yeah right yeah but i think jeff buckley is kind of a good example of someone who when you hear that he was a big led zeppelin fan then some of those songs like they kind of make sense and more that so like sense. the diversity of like his led would do you know your rock tunes with the riffs but then they'd kind of go in their celtic direction and more acoustic ballads what have you and a lot of that's present on this album and not like someone like a not to drop name like greta van fleet people would say like yeah we're influenced by led zeppelin like no shit <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah you don't say <laughs> there's a, there's some uh, love and hate for that band i find it yeah. kind of interesting i go back and forth i don't i don't know enough about them i just don't yeah. what i'll never understand i watched a gear rundown with featuring them and like I will just never We're talking about Greta Van Fleet, not Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Not Led Zeppelin. Greta Van Fleet. I'll never understand how they afforded all that gear. I'm pretty sure their parents were rich, if I'm not mistaken. It's like if someone's screaming at us right now listening to us, but I think they came from pretty well off. He was talking about his aunt. He's like, Yeah, there's like three of these in the world. I have two of them. Oh I have like a sixties like SG. It sucks, but whatever. And I'm just uh, like, what the heck? How the how did this guy who's like probably younger like, than yeah, me 17 or 18 afford or... all this vintage gear? Because vintage gear is not cheap. No, no. Like there's few people in the, like your Joe Bonamassas in the world. Yeah. Your Eric Clapton that could, you know. Well, even even David Gilmore just sold his entire collection. Yeah, which is insane. Yeah, he he's sold. Just like, uh, I don't need these anymore. He sold his Strat. You know, everything. Yeah, everything. I, I think he maybe probably maybe he went into Guitar Center and bought another Strat. <laughs> yeah, just like I made in he Mexico. He traded them like, in. Fender like, Road, road yeah. worn. Got any of those robot tuner Gibsons? <laughs> oh no, not the robot tuners. <laughs> you know something I read. That was I thought was kind of spoke to the character of Buckley was sure. he once halted the session for several days because someone compared him to Michael Bolton. I I came across that too. Did you? Yes. I'm glad you brought that up. I would have forgotten. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. I never would put those two together in my head. So it makes me wonder how much before that comment of the recording process 
still exists on the album or if it kind of they went back over stuff yeah it's overdubbed his vocals maybe he was singing i mean because he's a awesome singer i mean probably i'd argue after you know freddie mercury he's one of the the best you know rock singers yeah i mean his timbre his tone his phrasing of anything else i think is one of the best things about him but that's funny michael bolton michael bolton oh I would uh, halt the session too if someone came to me like that. It just, it's amazing that he could halt the session yeah. for a few days. Well, yeah, he could. Exactly. That wouldn't happen these days. And I think I also heard of that before they went in to record. Like, he didn't even really have a band. Like, he oh, only put a band well. together like, a couple weeks beforehand. Yeah. And he was like stalling the record company and like, yeah. oh, yeah, we're fine. We're fine. You know, and just finishing up stuff. He was, meanwhile, so, he's looking yeah. for the bass player. No, okay, that's so surprising because, especially for his original songs, I mean, some of them, they have odd meters, you know, some funky time signatures that occur within them. Uh, they're not the, easiest songs right off the bat that you're going to, you know, run through them once and like, okay, hit record. You know, that would, they would involve some practice time, which back then you would have, you know, the luxury to be able to practice in the studio and heck, can you just record every single, you know, practice that you're doing? If yeah, you so he wanted. kind of reminds me of guys like Trent Reznor where they okay. are the band. Interesting. Right? Yeah. Like without them, there is no Nine Inch Nails. That's true. Yeah. There's no... Jeff Buckley obviously was a solo artist, but like, yeah, you know, and he could hold his own on the guitar too. I mean, especially as we're about to talk on Hallelujah, that's him on his telly and just mm-hmm. him in a room playing through a, oh, what was the, uh, then your Vibralux? The Vibralux. Okay. I wanted to say Deluxe, but Reverb, but no. It it's crazy how many of these classic albums and sounds are just like a dude with his telly and Fender blackface. Yep. <laughs> Hey man, that's all you need. That's all you need. So something something about his particular tone on this too is really, really pure. It's very chimey. Yeah. Very without chimey being and shimmery. Uh well not yeah, not tinny or yeah. Yeah, piercing's a good word. It's not that. It's just very chimey, which just adds to the aura of the recording. Just the title itself, Hallelujah. And we can start to get into it. On the surface, sounds very religious, you know, very, you know, a spiritual tune. And of course, you listen to the tellies playing, you got some great, and actually, listening to this, you got a pretty good uh, facsimile of the sound of it. It's just a uh, Fender 55 amp simulator. Yeah, I have a telly here built by a gentleman right outside of Nashville called Tim Rocco. Shout out to Rocco Guitars. He built this uh, custom telly for me. Just got it earlier this year, actually. That's Instagram material for when we yes, hit yeah, that 250th. I, it, there you go, yeah. Get a photo of that bad Maybe bad he'll boy. sponsor an episode. Ooh. <laughs> or we can bring him in to talk about building guitars. Oh, that'd be cool. He's got to build me. Maybe we can talk, get him to... Yeah, you've been wanting a strap I've for I've been a wanting while. a strap for a while, and I have a, with I have a, Gibson, a console uh, what, sitting Gibson, behind um, my desk that I would need to with sell. A, a, Gibson Scale Link? Yeah, no, Gibson Scale Link. I, I decided against that. I against thought that? it was okay. silly. Especially, like, I was thinking about it, and then you mentioned the guy who had one built and how, how silly it was. I was like, he's and, probably right. And it was a pain in the ass to build it, apparently. Yeah, yeah so I guess... Changes the placement of the pickups and the body, apparently. And but all I'll, that, I'll yeah. always be partial to yeah. the Gibson scale length. Yeah. So anyway, what were you t- just talking about? I was the starting tone. to play the tune, the tone. Yeah, very chimey. I think it just adds to that kind of angelic. How many guitars are on this track? Is it just two? I only hear it as one. I think there's two. But there might be, there could be an overdubbed thing that blends in well enough that, because it can be played as one from what I hear. Unless there's like part that I'm not thinking of at the moment, but listening to it, I only hear you only heard one, one, but it could be uh, just doubled maybe, and with slight variances, like he's you know you know one guitar is only plucking to the second string, the other tracks plucking the first string. That could be that, but um, it could be played as one from right. everything I hear. Well, and 
with our standard YouTube covers. It typically is played as one. Yes. <laughs> the approach to it, and this is where we can get into some of the history of just the song itself. So Jeff Buckley, he used to gig a lot, you know, just him and guitar in the East Village at a place, I forget the name of the, not necessarily like club or... Like a restaurant. Like, yeah, a restaurant or coffee shop. I can't remember the name. I was like Cine or Cine or Cine. Buckley Fanatics are probably screaming at me now. But uh, so you just play a lot of covers there. But apparently the thing is like, there's an interview I read of someone that said, Jeff Buckley doesn't play covers. He just plays other people's music and makes them their own, which I can get that. It's like he would just like do another song, but just do his own version of it, you know, in different feel or style or change up the rhythm or phrasing of it almost like a blues musician would take you know just the lyrics of an old traditional song and careful change it up i know right so on the album grace this is one of three covers you could say the others being the reinterpretations uh, reinterpretations yeah so for hallelujah it's not really based off of leonard cohen's original version of hallelujah which for those who don't know this was written by leonard cohen older songwriter who just I think he passed away four or five years ago. Yeah, this fairly point. recently. And this, his version of Hallelujah was on his album, Various Positions from like the mid 80s, 84, 85. And for those who haven't heard it, it's, I think it's kind of cool. I enjoy it's a little of its time, especially some of the sounds. It's fat. It's a, uh, no, sorry, it's slower. It's a little slower version of it. A little deeper, I imagine. Yeah. And, you know, Leonard Cohen was known for sort of kind of like Bob Dylan, that halfway spoken word sort of a thing. You know, not, he wasn't going to belt out tunes or anything like that. You know, he was Canadian? I did. I just found that out this past week. Yeah. He is Canadian. Died in 2016. Okay, six. Okay, so about three years ago now. So Cohen, he definitely has like his, uh, his following, you know, and he was kind of like, almost like a post beatnik kind of songwriter poet in a way he'd very kind of witty lyricism and there's always kind of a humor to his words which uh, we can get into when we talk about his recorded version on the album various positions versus like what people these days record or sing you know? right didn't he, aren't a few of the verses switched there's some um, or just out out replaced oh yeah, yeah so Mid-80s, he puts this out, and it barely even made the album. I think the studio were wanting to like cut that album, or cut that track cut off that the album. Cut that silly Hallelujah song. Yeah, yeah. And no splash, nothing at all. It was literally just like a filler track on that album. It had no significance, didn't really gain much you know, attention at all. And then John Cale, in the early 90s, 92 recorded album called I'm Your Fan, and it was a tribute to Leonard Cohen. And on that, he did a version of Hallelujah, John Cale and Piano. And on that version, he's doing what now, how many people kind of treat this song, doing the arpeggios of the chord. Oh, so that wasn't an original. That's not on the Leonard Cohen version. Cohen's version is just more... And there's synths going on, bass drums. It's a full-on band production of it. It's cool, though, background vocals, like female background vocals. For those who've seen the movie Watchmen, the Zack Snyder film, I think they have the Leonard Cohen version in that movie. But yeah, it was just kind of a forgotten song. And then John Cale covers it on that album. And again, it doesn't do much. And John Cale's from, goes back to like the mid-late 60s, the Velvet Underground which is kind of like a avant-garde, you know, rock, kind of trippy, hippie band, you know, that they're both like of their time and ahead of their time. When you listen to them, it's like, oh yeah, that sounds exactly what I think the 60s sound is like. But it was kind of ahead of its time for what it was actually going on. It was a little bit more crazy than your like monkeys tunes, that sort of thing. And weren't those the guys who didn't even know how to play their instruments when they were The like, monkeys? Yeah, I'm pretty I know sure. they were like the first like, manufactured boy band. They were literally having studio musicians like coming in to like play the songs on the record while they were learning how to play their instruments in the the next room. Oh, I mean, they would, yeah, definitely have the studio musicians 
on the tracks, which, I mean, the songs themselves are really cool. I mean, it's yeah. like <laughs> cool stuff, but yeah, they were kind of a piece together thing in response to the, to the Beatles, obviously. So I have my, uh, my notes here, the lyrics and such. So yeah, Jeff Buckley is basically doing a version of John Cale's version of Leonard Cohen. And even to the point that at some point, someone was interviewed that they like talked to Jeff Buckley after a show once. And it's like, oh, I love that you're doing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. And he's like, and Jeff Buckley said, I don't even know that version. I'm doing John Cale in that sort of thing. So like, that's his take of it. And lyrically, it's true. The Leonard Cohen version, the first two verses are the same. You know, the, uh, heard there was a secret chord, you know, that verse. And then the second verse, your faith was strong, but you needed proof. But then the next two verses on Leonard Cohen's don't appear on John Cale's version or Jeff Buckley's version. So that third verse of Leonard Cohen goes, you say I took the name in vain. I didn't even know the name, but if I did, well, really, what's it to you? There's a blaze of light in every word. It doesn't matter which you heard, the holy or the broken, hallelujah. And that last line ends up being a title to a book, which I have here, called The Holy or the Broken by Alan Light. And this is a whole book literally just written about the song Hallelujah. Really? <laughs> about from Leonard Cohen to Jeff Buckley and all the other covers that it's, you know, people have done of it, The wow. Unlikely Ascent of Hallelujah. The Holy or Broken by uh, Alan Light, given to me as a gift by... Um, the famous local artist here in Nashville, Jim Sheradden, who uh, cool. has been with a uh, worked at Hat Show Print, the letterpress company here in downtown Nashville since the mid '80s. He just recently retired, but just had this book. He's like, "Hey, I think you'd like this." So I've kind of been slowly just you know just read through it every once in a while. So I might try to pull out a page or here, you know, an excerpt about this song. So I think that's kind of cool. They you know, named the book after a line of the tune that's does not appear in probably what would most people would say is the most famous version, Jeff Buckley's version of the song. It doesn't have that line in it. So the Kale and Jeff Buckley version, you know, those first two verses are the same. So let's talk about the first verse. And this is the kind of the the wit in Leonard Cohen's lyrics. That whole uh it's almost I think of it as, you know, as a musician, there's almost this like meta joke going on, like a music theory joke even to the fact when he talks about, well, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift. And for those who know who have played the song, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall. And literally, literally those are the chords, the four chord, the five chord, to the sixth minor, so it's a minor. You know? And so I think there's like, and right before it, he says, but you don't really care for music, do you? There's like this, like, you don't care how music's actually written or the makeup of music, but it goes like this, the four, the five, the minor fall and the major lift. I think it's kind of just like, almost like an inside joke. Maybe even something a teacher had once told him. Yeah, when you write Could chords, be, you yeah. know, you just do the fourth, the fifth, and then it falls and then you lift it up. And Exactly. I mean, lots of, especially old time musicians, old timers, they're like, yeah, you got, you know, the one chord, the four chord, the five chord, and every once in a while you throw in that minor chord. And, you know, usually that minor chord is the sixth minor, the relative minor to your major key. So I always love that line, you know. It's just kind of witty and kind of a little jab at the listener almost. So then the third and the fourth verses, these come from Kale's version. So you have to ask, like, well, where did... John Cale get these other verses if they're not actually on the album of Leonard Cohen's. Mm, right. So between the mid-80s to the early 90s, it's, uh, I read that Cale got in touch with Cohen about that song. It's like, you know, the lyrics about it. And Cohen apparently sent him about like 15 other verses that he had come up, came up with. I'm surprised he still had them all. I I, I Somehow that doesn't surprise me, I guess. He probably just has stacks and stacks of, well, he did have stacks and stacks of papers around, I would, I would imagine. So Kale gets like all these extra verses to the song, and he just kind of picked out the ones he liked. And he kind of picks out the ones that are a little bit more sexualized. You know, the third verse is the, uh, 
Maybe I've been here before. I know this room. I've walked this floor. I used to live alone, but I knew you. Oh, sorry. I used to live alone before I knew you. I've seen your flag on the marble arch. Love is not a victory march. It's cold and it's broken. Hallelujah. And then the fourth one is the really sexualized one. There was a time you'd let me know what's really going on below, but now you never show it to me, do you? Remember when I moved in you, the holy dove was moving too, with every breath we drew was hallelujah. And, so, and that's the verse that uh, Buckley uses too, as well. And I can see that these extra verses, Leonard Cohen was probably like, he had some similar phrasings and rhymings because that third verse ends with, it's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. And then there's a fifth verse that John Cale and Jeff Buckley both use. And that's the one that's a little bit more spiritual. Maybe there's a God above and all I ever learned from love was how to shoot at someone who outdrew you. It's not a cry you hear at night. It's not someone who's seen the light. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. So it's repeating that last, it's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah line. And that kind of just makes, makes me think of like, he had some similar lines that he kind of would throw back into another verse, you know, as yeah. he was writing them. So those are the ones that, those extra verses that don't appear on the various positions album, which is kind of interesting because some of those verses become, you know, the more well-covered ones. You know, when people cover this tune, it's usually like the Buckley, the John Cale versions yeah. lyrically rather than Leonard Cohen's. And I think even later on when Cohen would ever play this song live, he would just throw in some of those extra verses or like replace <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't constantly the same, which is also kind of adds the mystique to the song. It's kind of, was always changing over time. You know, Hallelujah is one of those songs where I, I feel like people kind of assign their own significance to it. Yes, very true. Like you, I've literally walked through a mall here in Nashville and you know, some malls, they have like those big kind of open areas. They might have a little stage in the middle. So they had a little stage in the middle with the sound system and they were having like kids sing. And my wife and I were just walking through and there's like a no older than a 12-year-old girl on stage. And guess what song she was singing? <laughs> uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Nope, not the, the other ukulele song. Oh, uh, hallelujah. <laughs> hallelujah. I don't know which verses she sang, but I was just like cringing on the inside a little bit, like, because exactly what you said, like, people can make this song what they want it to be. Like, the most devout religious person and the you know, the strongest atheists can both like appreciate this song and take their own meaning out of it. <laughs> and argue over it. Yeah. It, and that too. Yeah. It, you know, it's very interpretative, you know, whether it's supposed to be very spiritual, is it supposed to be about love, you know, relationships, you know, the passage of time, you know, is it like some cosmic consciousness thing going on about like, you know, whenever you make love, you know, everything in the universe becomes like a, explosion of, you know, hallelujah. You know, like it could a, be anything. You can, like almost like a Beatles thing. It'll, yeah. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they're talking to each other about it. <laughs> so I guess, yeah, that interpretive nature of this song is really what started to build its kind of draw, you know, as it got covered and covered again. And did anyone people. ever ask Cohen what he originally wrote it about? Yeah, um, I think it's in this book. I don't know if I could find it at the moment, but I feel like he always felt like he was fine with others' version, others' versions of it. In fact, um, I do know there's a story in the early 2000s, speaking about Cohen being a Canadian, Katie Lang, another Canadian singer-songwriter, she covered Hallelujah in, uh, before some like big sporting event. I'm not sure. If it was builds up Hockey, in Canada. no doubt. Yeah, well, probably. Yeah. So she covered it, and um, it was like a widely televised thing, and it was said by, I think, Cohen's wife that him and her were watching it, and he leans in like, well, that, that's the end of that song. Can't do anything more with it. You know, like she she did it. So he, it was actually like Katie Lang's version, apparently, that was the final, like, I can't do anything. You know, it's, no, it's not even my song anymore, in a way. Right. I, meaning it as a, you know, the best compliment. Almost. Right. It's almost almost like to bring back Nine Inch Nails. And I was just Johnny going Cash. to say, yeah, yeah about, Johnny Cash Hurt. Yeah, about Hurt, yeah. 
It's the Nine Inch Nails song, but but I think in interviews Trent Reznor even said that's Johnny's song. Yes. It, now and Nine Until just recently he's starting to do that song again live, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, it's the same thing. It was like it's larger than the person who originally wrote it now, and it's Which like it's everyone's must song. Must be surreal to write something like that, especially since it was a you know. Not to put you know a negative connotation on it, but it was just like a nothing song on a nothing album that wasn't successful commercially. You know, didn't really have much of a critical or a commercial response or audience response to it. And it was just kind of a, as I said, like a filler track. And it slowly started to get covered here and there. And those individual artists, like their fan base, started to, you know, hear it and like stuck with them. And then I think it's John Cale's version that's on the movie Shrek. I'm not mistaken. And that was the big moment. Yeah, we think about Buckley's version, but in fact, it comes down to (laughs) movie Shrek Shrek. that has it in it that exploded it on the really the mainstream level, you know, the wider audience level. Because then you start having people from, you know, on American Idol and all the singing shows start to cover it. And then Buckley's version starts to regain. Traction, traction, yeah, right, traction. Right. It starts to, you know, gain a bigger audience again, and so even Buckley himself, because he passes away, what uh, soon after, Not like three like years later, years, in like yeah, ninety-seven, I think, uh, by a tragic, what was it? It was like a drowned, yeah, drowned, in the Mississippi River, I believe. It's that's crazy. I think he was going for a swim before a show, and a boat that's what passed by, and it, it drug him under the water, and he couldn't oh couldn't get out. Yeah, it's. So sad. So he even didn't even live long enough to see the influence of that song, especially his version of that song. Which 97. Yeah, 97, yeah. So he passed, like, in, you know, even that album, Grace, it did okay, but it wasn't a huge hit during that point. It wasn't until later that it got re-released, and even Hallelujah was re-released as a single in, in the 2000s, if I'm not mistaken. So it's kind of crazy to think that even his version, which we kind of go back to as like, that's the definitive version. He didn't even really live to see it It's almost like grow. Sublime. Yeah, true, yeah. Their lead singer had passed away before they had really really hit it. Hit and it. then when, once he passed away, everyone's like, oh, this man's great. Yeah, and, you know, and sadly, that kind of lends that mystique to it, you know, almost like a mythology starts to be yeah. you know, created. But in Buckley's case, it's well deserved because I mean, it's a wonderful recording. The music video is great too. It's really simple. Oh, I haven't seen it. I don't know. Or I maybe seen I have. It. And I just really simple. It's not like, recently. I haven't watched it. Yeah. Basically, he just him in a dark room. It's it's the way I I envision the song being recorded. Yeah. Just basically <laughs> him in a dark room with like a candle. With a candle. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> this is what it sounds like. It's a great. But then the. We're pretty sure. I mentioned this to you before we started recording. Supposedly, in the recording process for this, like he just did take after take of "Hallelujah," and Buckley was kind of known like he he had a improvisorial approach to a lot of music. Like you know, people would say like he would do one song one way one night, do this next song completely different the next night. You know, one night he might play slide on a song never play slide again on the song. You know, like he kind of had this kind of like in the moment approach that a lot of jazz musicians have. Because he was, you know, he's kind of influenced by jazz too. Um, Lilac Wine is a jazz tune that's reimagined. So you imagine like probably take after take, there are a lot of little nuanced differences and some maybe even larger differences. But the take that ends up being on Grace, pretty sure is a compilation of some of those takes put together. Like whether it's... I don't um, want to believe it. You don't want to believe it? I, I don't, don't want to believe it. It, it, it. He did it once. It was the only <laughs> take. <laughs> he never played the song before, and it it was just that. That's that's how it will live in my mind. You can believe that. And I like to believe that too, but reading that, because to my ears, there is almost like, I feel like he kind of made up the intro and some of the, uh, there's like an extended instrumental section before that last verse. When he starts to go up higher on the neck with the arpeggiated triads, I feel like it's just kind of like in the moment he, I mean, he knows the guitar well enough, you know, how to get up to your higher four chord and five chord, you know, triad 
inversions that it's kind of halfway just kind of improvising over the chord progression. Maybe played around with it once or twice, had kind of yeah. an idea about it, but nothing Yeah, the really. large, the kind of the larger f- idea, but then like not note for note, string by string, what I'm going to do. So the my ears, that's how I kind of hear it. It has almost like this spontaneity to it that kind of feels like it was just done on the spot. And that could be, but it just might have been over multiple takes that they, you know, like maybe take... 10 was the one, which I think is why you get that. Like, I like to imagine that was from like take 15. He's like, I'm going to do it again. Like, Here He's we like, go. I just want some that lunch. Breath. Yeah. <laughs> the last take, and then I can finally take a break. Yeah. No kidding. Well, how about us? Is it about time to take a break? Anything else about this song you can think of? Or have I completely skipped over? Oh well, something? I was gonna I was gonna mention kind of the mix of this song and how yeah, yeah. it's a little bit deceivingly difficult. Can, Obviously, sure. there's not a lot of instrumentation to deal no. with, but with you think that, you think there's two tracks, right, or two guitars? Right? I think I think there might be two guitars. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. We just talked about this, but I couldn't remember if that was before we started recording or not. Ah, no, it was. It's in this very episode. I hear it as I think it might be one but anyway but i know yes. for certain they definitely have two different types of reverbs going on okay one on a different one on the guitar and the, the and vocals the, voice. the vocals have a plate reverb on it and the, the reason i'm confident about that is when you listen to the consonants a tall tale sign of a plate reverb is the, the those consonant s's and t's hit the plate really really hard okay and you can hear yeah. that in the verb and then if you listen to the guitar, it's kind of like a little bit different tonality and, you know, it's just not exactly the same verb. It might might be similar in length, but just the overall characteristics of it, it sounds a little different. And It may even be from the amp itself, the verb. I've cranked up that spring reverb. Oh, yeah, it could be a spring. And they maybe added something. And I think, I also think there is a, some sort of modulation effect on the, on just the reverb, not the guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, like a phaser, like a phaser or chorus. chorus, Yeah. And just, it's really, it's really, really hard. I can only hear it when I switch to my smaller Aventone monitors. That probably adds to the kind of angelic kind of shimmer that's going on. Yeah. It gives it a little bit of movement, but when you have so little tracks, you, you have to do everything you can kind of make the voice larger than life yes because you have yeah. nothing else filling that space so like yeah. it's easier in a sense well you don't have you know all these different things kind of like trying to mask the voice but it makes it harder because you have nothing masking the voice <laughs> and luckily jeff buckley is a phenomenal singer uh, it's so great on this so like, and he's so dynamic too like yeah that really really helps you out yeah because like like i have said before you can't take someone's limp-wristed you know, snare drum hits and turn them into John Bonham. <laughs> Similarly, you can't take a weak singer and make them sound larger than life. You kind of, no, kind of have no. to have that to begin with. So luckily, he has that. He's a phenomenal singer. Yeah. So there's no no polishing of a turd on this. This is this it's, is like a pristine like, you know, uh, what are those uh, fancy eggs? Those uh, you know what I mean? Fancy eggs. Uh, oh, the eggs. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, um, Fabergé. Yeah, yeah. Fabergé eggs. Yeah, I mean that's <laughs> what a weird thing to like collect and buy. Like, like you just shout out a Fabergé egg. Would you like to <laughs> take a take a look at my million dollar egg that yes. it has diamonds and crap on it? You just add a little reverb to it, and I think we'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's kind of crazy, and I'm sure they use like you know some some comp- compression and EQ and stuff. But I, I I like to imagine that it was probably very very slight, and that it kind of like. And that was the hard part in it, like not overdoing the mixing of it yeah. and kind of just letting it be what it is. Yeah. It's it's really great. I I do think if I was giving it a grade, I'd knock them a few points for uh, the consonants are just a touch, okay. a touch uh, harsh. Could be just from you either really good get into like the details of carving out some consonants and some of the syllables or you kind of start – just to leave stuff as it is. Yeah, well, and they could have the been back in. Yeah, exactly. Back in those days, you like the more and more you compress, those little consonant sounds get louder and louder and louder. 
Yeah. That's what a compressor is doing. You're compressing in the high parts down, but then those low parts are also coming up. But again, that's like, that's a nitpicky thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like, oh my gosh, the these S's are ruining the, the track. Yeah, true. Like and it's, most listeners don't notice that stuff. You know? Yeah. Unless it's very obvious. <laughs> exactly. And these, these days you probably, you could use a de-esser, but using a de-esser comes with some inherent problems about making yeah. them sound like they have a lift. Yeah, you don't want that, especially back then, too. You know? Yeah, because these days you would probably, I wouldn't even use a de-esser. I would just go in and chop the consonant sounds and mm-hmm. then use clip gain in my DAW and just gain them down. Yeah. And it would, it's time consuming, but it, it's really effective. Sounds like it, yeah. Sounds annoying. It's a little annoying. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's worth it. Yeah. You're going to do that on this whole uh, recording, right? Nope. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> but if you like today's episode, Yes. We would please ask you to rate and if you can subscribe to whatever platform you're listening to this on. It really helps new people find the podcast if it gets ratings and is constantly getting comments and stuff. And if you have any comments or suggestions of songs you'd like to for us to cover or you want to ask us any questions or give us any feedback, email us at coffeeandconsoles at gmail.com and eventually I think we might have a Q&A portion of the show yes hopefully if we get some feedback we'll be love to hear from people give you a shout out if you like questions or concerns or comments that's this week's episode thank you all very much for listening I've been John I've been Kevin long days and pleasant nights <laughs>